Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Hello, and a very warm welcome to this special edition of Jazz Shapers. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jazz Shapers Live Session. As you can tell, I've got a rather excitable audience here at the beautiful Browns Hotel in Mayfair, London. Jazz Shapers is the place where I get to bring the shapers of the world of business together with the greatest musicians who are shaping the world of jazz, soul and blues. Joining me very shortly on stage, my business shaper is none other than the chairman and co-founder of Rocco Forte Hotels, the luxury hotel company. It is, of course, Sir Rocco Forte himself. But first, we're going to have some music. She grew up singing gospel at church, and after two friends persuaded her to audition for Ike and Tina Turner, she grabbed the opportunity, learning her craft on tour as one of their backing singers. Though she'd never dreamt, she says, of a professional career in music, our musical jazz shaper overcame great personal challenges and became known as London's first lady of soul, collaborating with Small Faces and Rod Stewart before releasing her debut solo album, Age Just 21. With the first of several songs on today's Jazz Shapers, the live session, please welcome the original soul superstar. It is P.P. Arnold. Thank you. Good evening. I'm going to start my set with the first song that I ever wrote. And today we live in a, in a melting pot culture where uh, interracial relationships are the norm. But back in the day, when I first came from the United States out of the civil rights revolution into the rock and roll revolution, it wasn't the norm. But when I came here, I had my first interracial relationship. And... Uh, this song is all about that. Kind of went like this. Every time he sees me, he pretends that he can see. And though it hurts me badly, I know my baby loves me. Cause every night when the lights are low I hear somebody at my door I know it's him out there And I know that I still care for my baby Both his mom and his daddy Say that he shouldn't see me And it hurts me so badly He thinks they're being so silly But he still listens to what they say So I'll be patient and wait for the day And then they'll understand that he loves me. Why can't they leave us alone to live a life of our own? We're not hurting anyone, we just want to. Oh, 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 
la 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 But he still listens to what they say So I'll be patient and wait for the day They realize he's a man Then they'll understand that he fantastic that was of course pp arnold with though it hurts me badly it's from her latest album the new adventures of pp arnold that's her first album of new material in 51 years much more coming up from her and her band and we'll be meeting them i'll be having a short chat with her as well in the meantime my business shaper for this jazz shapers live session is as i said earlier sirocco forte He's the chairman and co-founder of Rocco Forte Hotels, the luxury hotel brand, and this wonderful building, Browns here in Mayfair, is one of 14 Rocco Forte hotels across Europe. And more recently, the Forte family launched their first hotel in Asia in Shanghai. With his grandfather and father in the hospitality business, Rocco's approach to customers was shaped at an early age. Treat guests differently because they're individuals. From spending half his school holidays working across his father's company, the Forte Hotel and Restaurant Business, later Trust House Forte, Rocco succeeded his father as chairman of the company in 1992. We're going to be talking about that later as well. Over the next four years, he was responsible for more than 800 hotels, 1,000 restaurants, and nearly 100,000 employees in 50 countries worldwide. But the family's domination of the UK hotel industry came to an end in 1996 after a bitter and well-publicised takeover battle which led to Granada Media taking control. With his sister Olga, Rocco rebuilt a new business. Focusing on luxury hotels in major continental cities from 1997, run independently rather than as a chain, each hotel capturing a unique sense of place, just as this one does here, with that strong family influence. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for today's business shaper, the one, the only, Sirocco Forte. It's the welcome you get every time you come in your own hotel. I I am looked after quite well in my hotels, (laughs) surprisingly enough. You've been at this for 50 years. Pretty much. 1969, you joined the family business. This is in your blood. It's in the family's blood. It's what you do. What is it that you love today about the business that you've created and walking into your own hotel, having a conversation in your own hotel? Looking back from the start of Rocco Forty Hotels, which was now 22 years ago, I think the thing I'm most proud of is, is the culture that we've created in the company a sense of wanting to please the customer, to look after the customer, a belief with everybody in the company of what we're trying to do and a commitment to deliver high levels of service in a personalised basis to all our customers. And 
yeah, I've now got 14 hotels. We've got some iconic hotels uh, in, in various major cities around Europe, in Rome in particular, the De Roussy, and a new hotel now, the De La Ville, Brown's Hotel here in London, the Balmoral in Edinburgh. And they're all special hotels. And people say to me, which is your favorite hotel? Well, I don't really have one. They're a bit like children, I suppose. You can't have a favorite, a favorite child. Well, you can, but uh, you, you can't they, tell them they, who's favorite. They, and I've got one of them here, so it's had to be very She's careful. obviously your favourite. This, 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 Lyd- this is Lydia, who's uh, here this evening, so therefore is number one. Um, <laughs> but, um, and some of them, you know, weren't there before. For example, the De Roussy in Rome had been a hotel before the war. It was turned into offices that had been empty for eight years before I went in there and turned it back into a hotel. And when I sit in the gardens there having lunch, in the better months of the the year. And I look around and see it's full of people, staff working very happily in the hotel. I feel, you know, I feel some uh, sense of achievement. In Sicily with Verdura, which was the most painful of the hotels to develop because this was a greenfield, 220 acres, two kilometers of coastline in the southwest of Sicily. And uh, I imagine that once I'd bought the land, there were 72 different owners of the land. Once I'd got past that, everything would be easy. It, from then, it took me eight years to open the hotel. And I was dealing with the Sicilian bureaucracy. I never had any problems with mafia. Uh, people, people immediately expect you to say something about that when you talk about Sicily, although it's sort of, it's a little bit in the past, all that. But it was the bureaucracy which was so difficult and delayed me and they stopped the development for a while, for a year and a half, actually, and so made it a very difficult beginning. But I, I've been in, as you said, I've been involved from an early age. I used to, I started working in my holidays in hotels. Half the holidays would be spent in one of our, uh, my father's establishments from about the age of 14 onwards. My first job was in the Café Royal, in the cellars there. And actually, it's the only time I've ever been headhunted because uh, I was running around, busying myself, looking pretty active, I suppose. And one of the suppliers came in and came up to me and offered me twice as much as I was earning, (laughs) which I think was a wonderful sum of six pounds a week in those days. So I went to my father, I said, look, you know, someone's offered me 12 pounds, can you, I think I should be paid more. He said, well, if you want to go and work for him, do so. Uh, uh, so, so I didn't, but I worked in washing up. I worked as a chambermaid. I've worked in control offices. I've worked behind snack bar counters. I've done sort of more or less every job that's available uh, in hotels. I worked in the kitchens as well. Uh, I wish I'd spent more time in the kitchens now because I never really learned to cook properly. And uh, the important thing about knowing food is you can tell chefs then exactly what you want. It's more difficult if you can't describe the processes in, in quite the right way. Uh, but I seem to manage with chefs anyway. But, but at its heart, a, a hotel is a simple thing, right? I mean, as a, as a person that stays in a hotel, you want great food, you want a lovely environment, you want the bed to be comfortable, you want the service to be impeccable. I mean, I'm saying this as I'm saying, and I'm realising this is not an easy thing. But that's a lovely and romantic thing to do. And I've read a little bit about the romance that you, I believe, feel for the, for the business. How does that work when you've got a serious business to run? When you're looking after, now it's 14 hotels. It's a £200 million plus business. How do you ensure you retain that simplicity and that romance in the context of running a big business? The glamour is what you see from, from the outside. It's not quite so glamorous. <laughs> from the inside, and there's, and there's a, a lot of hard work involved and a huge attention to detail in delivering the guest experience during a stay at a hotel. A lot of things have to come together, the various departments have to work effectively for the guest experience to be, to be a perfect one. And I don't think anybody should come into this industry who doesn't uh, love it and believe in it and, and feel passionate about it because it's, it effectively takes over your life. A hotel general manager has to evolve his life around the hotel, as must his family. He's effectively has got to be available 24 hours a day. But unless you have that passion, that belief, and you want to deliver, it's very difficult then mm. uh, to do the job properly. You know, my sister as well, 
particularly when we were starting up, we looked at every single little detail. We'd go into a hotel and we'd pick up on the details. Um, and that, now we have, a, a, of course, a much bigger organization. We still do that to lesser degree. But I, I believe that I've got, you know, I go into the hotels on a regular basis. I see each of my hotels at least twice a year, and I spend two or three days in each to satisfy myself that what is being done in it is, is correct and, and within the standards and, and philosophy of the company and that the, right, the service has been delivered the right passion by the, by the staff. And that detail, when I read your father's autobiography, he talked about the detail around counting the number of people that walked past his first property that he wanted to open in the 30s, I believe, the milk bar. Is that still the level of detail that you uphold for you and your team? Well, that's, I mean, a lot think, of, that's a lot of detail. That was, that was, he was counting the number of customers that passed by, walked yeah. past, to say, hoping that, and then sort of calculated how many <laughs> might... might uh, my drop-in, this was at Markle House in, uh, in uh, Regent Street, uh, next to the Polytechnic. But do you still, and when you come in here, do you notice the flowers? Do you think about the flowers? No, well, that's, all, that's, that's the sort of detail that makes, uh, that makes a, a difference. And I think a luxury hotel is different to a you know, budget hotel and so on because it's all this detail that makes the difference. And sometimes a customer doesn't notice, but he feels that the ambiance uh, is, is right because you've, you've done it in the right way. A lot of the jobs in hotels are quite hard. The chainmaid's job is one of the hardest jobs because they're working on their own. It's actually quite physical work. And it's important. Whenever I go into a hotel, I make sure going into the housekeeping department, talking to chambermaids, and also into the washing up section because washer-uppers are the lowest of the low in a, in a hotel and rather treated as sort of dog's bodies in the kitchen. But I understand what it is, uh, the work they do, how important it is, and without them, the kitchen couldn't function. It's the same with the chambermaids. Stay with me for more here on our Jazz Shapers Live session special, my guest, Sir Rocco Forte. Much more coming up from him shortly. But right now, it's time for some more music. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back on the stage with a round of applause, perhaps P.P. Arnold. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that first song that I sang, Though It Hurts Me Badly, it's from my first album, The First Lady of Immediate Records. But I re-recorded it because it never got the attention that I felt that it deserved at the time. And I've put it on my new album, which is The New Adventures of P.P. Arnold. And this next song is also from The New Adventures, and it's called Baby Blue. Don't hold me down Another day Six of the best words You could ever hear him say A symphony Fell from his lips Compared to earlier tunes He knocked together quick Tuesday 
Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. This is Jazz Shapers, the live session with me, Elliot Moss, here on Jazz FM. And nestled within our wonderful live audience here in the heart of Brown's Hotel in Mayfair, I'm delighted to see the beaming faces of many previous business shapers. There's lots of you. Raise your hands if you've been. There they go. Hello, hello, hello. You're everywhere. Nice to see you all. All here, of course, though, today to see my business shaper, which is Sirocco Forte, chairman and co-founder of Rocco Forte Hotels. Sirocco, we were talking about what goes on under the bonnet of a hotel to make it look effortless, and there's a lot of work, and you talked about different roles. I want to talk about what happens under the bonnet of the family that runs those hotels, because this is a family business. It was a family business in its previous iteration, where you worked with your father. How is it working with your children? How was it working with your father? What do you think are the unique characteristics that are different to a family business versus a more corporate one? When I started this business, my sister Olga joined me in the business a little bit reluctantly, actually, because I think she, she thought, well, there's a chance to take life a bit easier. But uh, she did it really to support me. And she had a very clear vision of decor in hotels and the way things were going. It was during the sort of minimalist era and design hotels. And I hadn't really ever thought about that very much. I thought we'd take up a hotel, sort it out, and then move on to the next one. But she, this design theme that runs through our hotels came from her. And, of course, it helped in, in launching the group and publicising it. So we've had a very easy relationship all the way through one of the great things about this new business is I actually spend a lot of time working with her. I don't really interfere in what she's doing to any great degree. I mean, I look at prototype rooms when we do them for a hotel, and I criticize them more from the point of view of the guest comfort than from the deck or the decor side. If I don't like something, I'll say so. But, but it's not very often that that happens. So it's been a, it's been a fantastic relationship. Uh, one of the great things about the new business. My children, it, it's slightly different because they've, they've all come into the business at a much later stage. They all were encouraged to work in their holidays like I was. And I think they got a flavour of the industry as a result. None of them particularly initially wanted to come into the business. Uh, Lydia, who's here, she was headhunted to become the assistant manager in a restaurant, a new restaurant opened Chelsea Green. The manager left after six weeks and she became uh, the manager of the restaurant and ran it for about a year and a half. She got fed up with closing the till at two o'clock every morning. So I said, well, why don't you come and join me? And so 
So she says I was very surreptitious in the way I did that. And, uh, and, but, Unfortunately, but, she can't speak for herself, but she's smiling, so there's, maybe she's the, com- the, complicit. But, that, but how she, did you but ask her? How did, I mean, when you, you know, these are delicate matters, aren't they? Well, it wasn't, but it was sort of you know, a casual conversation, basically. And she thought, because I could see she was fed up. Uh, and so, and she thought it was a good idea. And she knows a lot, a lot more about restaurants, having run a standalone restaurant, than a lot of people, or a lot of people in in the business, my business, knew at the time. So she, that's the area that she focuses on, and and does and does very well in. Irene, um, she developed the spa philosophy for the company, uh, which we didn't have before. Each each hotel did its own thing, and now she's developed a line of skin creams, organic skin creams. And my son joined me, and he works on the development side, finding new hotels for us to run. So, so what intrigues me is obviously the, and, and this is public, the, you know, one fights with one's family. One has confrontations, one has conflict. Uh, I think I watched a, a short clip of Irene, your, your other daughter, who's not here again to defend herself, so you'll have to do it for her. But she said, you know, Dad really likes lap pools, swimming pools, because he's a very keen sportsman, if you didn't know. And really, the lap pool doesn't work in a spa. There are other things to consider, and we fundamentally disagreed. At which point you smiled and she smiled and she talked about this phrase, brilliantly euphemistic, generational collaboration, which is basically a way of saying I disagree with my father. When the children disagree with their father, what does their father say? Well, I think... (laughs) The edited version. No, we, uh, I don't think we disagree about anything very much, actually. But we, we have, and, and at the end of the day, I'm still the boss. So. <laughs> I think you've answered the question. So, so, so they, they have to do what I say. But, but um, no, but I mean, I think, you know, they, they, they come at things from a slightly different angle. They're, you know, they, they're young, they have different views about what's going on and how things, how things should be done. And they make a very good contribution as a result. And I'm, I'm very willing to listen to what they have to say. I don't necessarily always, uh, always agree. But a lot of the things they, uh, they'd like to do, we, we implement. Uh, and uh, do they, you sometimes... comp- they help to keep the company fresh and, and young. Do you sometimes see those conversations played out in the same way you had those conversations with your father? Yeah, I'm sort of slightly different because I think uh, relationships in those days were much more were more formal. Although we were an Italian family and a very loving one, I mean, the, there was more sort of deference in the way you talked to your parents and than my children. <laughs> show oh these dear, days, these days. When's PPR the, coming back? The the the. the uh, but, but I'm quite happy to debate things. My father said, if he disagreed with me, he said, "Shut up! You don't know what you're talking about." But my father was terrific. His ambition was that I should take over the company after him, and he sort of groomed me to, to do that, and I learned a hell of a lot from it. The only conflict we ever had was when it was time to take over, and he wasn't quite ready to, to, to let go, and that's always the issue, and it's a very difficult one to handle. We were a public company then. He was 84 when he stepped down. And it was very difficult. Your father's your father, and you love him, and you can't push him aside, even if you have the ability to do so. So there was sort of a year and a half of sort of, as you said earlier, uh, I was sacked three times, I resigned another three times. And so. <laughs> but it, but it, uh, uh, it no. anyway, eventually we came to a conclusion. Actually, the one regret I have is that I couldn't find a way of, of keeping him in the business you know, after I, t- I took it over, in the sense that he was such a powerful figure, and the founder is a powerful figure, and, I'm, I, and you know, I noticed that in my own business. I have to sometimes be careful of what I say. If I make a joke, sometimes some people decide to implement it. <laughs> the, the, uh, anyway, things evolved. Things evolve indeed, especially in relationships and families. Plenty more coming up from my brilliant guest, Sirocco Forty, in a couple of minutes. But first, here's a classic jazz shaper. If you're feeling sad and lonely There's a service I can render Tell the one who loves you only I can be so 
This is Jazz Shapers, the live session with me, Elliot Moss, on Jazz FM. We have a live audience. We're here in the heart of London and Brown's Hotel in Mayfair, one of the 14 Rocco Forte hotels with my business shaper chairman and co-founder of these luxury hotels, Sir Rocco Forte himself. I'm intrigued about how a person like you, who's been through so much in the world of business, handles pressure. And the pressure going back to, for a, a brief moment, to 1996, when the, the company was taken over in a hostile way by Granada. I read the last chapter of your father's autobiography, and it mapped out what you went through to try and defend the company, to try and hold on to it. And obviously history tells the story which says it was taken apart afterwards and all the things you said were bad about the idea came true. At that time, if you recall, how did you cope? What were your coping mechanisms? What were you drawing on to ensure that you stayed sane and that a year later, which I think is extraordinary, you started again? Well, the whole, the whole process uh, of a takeover bid is very, is very controlled and there's stages in the process which you have to follow. Uh, and you're very limited in what you can do to defend yourself. The whole issue, of course, is creating shareholder value. So it's not about saving the company for the, the incumbent management. It's about achieving the best possible value for shareholders. And in that, we were successful in driving, in driving the, the share price up and also driving the bid up, which created the biggest take of a bid at that time that, that there ever been. I was lucky because I was fit. In those days, I was running marathons. So I was very fit. And every evening, I'd run home from the office in Holborn to Chelsea, uh, where I lived. And that sort of got cobwebs out of the system. But I had, had a lot of stamina and a lot of resistance because of my fitness and, and a lot of determination to continue to take the company forward. It's a terrible process. You're in the you're in you know the two rounds of going to visit all the institutional shareholders, to own your shares. You're dealing with the press on a continuous basis, a very high profile takeover. But the whole it's two months the process, and you sort of whisk through it in a way. You know, you're almost not aware of the of the time passing because it's from morning till night. And even sometimes at night you wake up thinking about an angle that you might try or something of something different that you might do. But I think it's also, you know, you have to have a sense of determination and ability to want to overcome, overcome difficulties when they're presented. And not everybody has that. Was there a sense, though, that sometimes you didn't quite want to be Sirocco, who was in the public eye? Were there moments when you went, I just want this to go away and stop? I quite like to put my pyjamas on, close the door and just stay put. Does that ever occur to someone like you, where you just literally want to withdraw? No, well, I haven't got to that stage. That, in fact, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the, 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 if, if I were to get to that stage, I would withdraw, I think. You know, find, uh, uh, but, but I think whilst I have the enthusiasm and the energy uh, to drive the business for. I'd like this business to be bigger than it is today. And I think we need to double the size uh, of the company, which won't change uh, its character very much. It won't change the psyche of the company, uh, which I think is very important, and will give us a bigger spread of properties, better utilization of the central, the central structures, and therefore a sounder business as a result. And sort of I've set myself uh, the goal of trying to achieve that before... I sort of hand over to someone else. We talked about family in the, that business context and your relationship with your father a little bit and now your children. And you talked about we're a very loving Italian family, British family. Was that support also important looking back? And is it still important? Do you draw on that without sounding too fuzzy because it's slightly off the balance sheet, as it were? But do you think that support is something else that's in, enabled you to do what you do? Yes, I think, I, you know, I believe the family is the bedrock of society. And, you know, I don't like a lot of what's going on today because I think it threatens the traditional family and, and that way of life. The family is the only bulk work against the, the state and an all-powerful uh, all powerful state. So I think everything should be done to encourage, encourage the family to continue to exist as it has in the past. Of course, you draw strength from the people around you. Obviously, there are a lot of very dysfunctional families where things don't work. But I think if in families where people are brought up in the right way, 
uh, and so on. There's always a level of support uh, there when you when you need it, and it's usually in bad times, difficult times, that you need the support most of all. Stay with me for my final chat with Sirocco in a few minutes. But now it's time for some more music, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome back P.P. Arnold to the stage. There she is, and there her band, sitting very patiently, waiting to play. Just before we, we have some music, I, I just want to talk to you for a moment. It's fantastic to have you here. Home. I mean, it is home. You're obviously American, but you lived... How long did you have you lived in London oh, over the no. years? Oh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a British resident. I've been here since 1966. Really. It was a good year. It was a very good year. You guys won the World Cup. Unfortunately, I remember it because it's very not been much year. since. I do. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a very good year for me. I first came to the UK in 1966 with Ike and Tina Turner. I was an Iket, and uh, I was fortunate to be with them. They had a hit record called River Deep Mountain High. They were invited to come and support the Rolling Stones on their 1966 tour. You're a musician, you're a singer, but you were in an environment then of the most famous people on the planet, the most famous musicians. How do you keep sane through that? (laughs) Well... If if you did. You know, I was so square. (laughs) I mean, I had had a, a kind of a difficult life before then. I never planned to be in the music industry. It wasn't an ambition of mine. Just a day in the life changed my life. I actually said a prayer and asked God to show me a way out of the situation that I was in. And, you know, about an hour after the prayer, I found myself in Icantina Turner's living room singing, dancing in the street. (laughs) We should all pray. Yeah, Yeah, powerful prayer. It's a very powerful (laughs) prayer. And and what about now? Here we are, your first new material for a number of years. You're back, you're creating. How does that feel? Well, it feels great. I mean, I've always been creating. I've just had to deal with the ups and downs of uh, my career and of my life. I kept believing in myself and was fortunate enough to be able to collaborate with many, many, many great artists. And I just keep singing. I love to sing. I sang my first solo when I was four years old, a song called Soldiers in the Army, and I'm still a strong soldier. <laughs> well, I think we should Out have here. another track. We should yeah. have another, another song from The Strong Soldier. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's P.P. Arnold and Band. This next song is another song from my latest album, The New Adventures of P.P. Arnold. It's a gift from Mr. Paul Weller, and it's a song about peace and love, and it's called Shoot the Dove. I felt the glow up on the wall I found your light, made me warm Down below others came and went While I just seemed to fade into the wind The whitewashed walls the summer spent So much time I wasted there Down below others came and went Walking in a flow Into evening time when this bitter song Neon lights that burn so slippery slow and you kill the love when you shoot the dove. You kill the thing in life that makes sparks fly. You kill a dream when you start to scream. And you kill the love when you shoot the dove. Gonna pour some peace into our lives. Gonna pour some peace into our lives. 
The wonderful P.P. Arnold and her brilliant band. We'll be having one last track. I think it might be quite special, and that'll be at the end, so hold tight. This is Jazz Shapers. It's the live session. I'm joined by Sirocco Forte here in his own hotel, in his own home at Brown's. How do you relax? What does it take for you to be able to actually switch off? You talked about the general manager role, and you said you live and you breathe it, but you've got that role times not just 14, but the next, as you said, 20, 30 hotels you're thinking about in the next three to five years, thinking about all sorts of things. When do you actually switch off? Well, I mean, you're doing, you're doing your dirt. I, one of the ways I, I switched off was I took up triathlons, and that sort of focuses the mind. <laughs> a very normal thing to do, uh, to, to relax. To, to, uh, quite hard. But in fact, I did, I did one Ironman, which was uh, you swim 3.8 kilometers, you cycle 180, and then you run a marathon. And the training for that was so hard. I was doing 26 hours a week. It started interfering with my work. So that was a bad way to relax. But no, I think sometimes you need something to take your mind off off the business. I play golf. That concentrates uh, the mind quite. I don't think this idea that there's a sort of necessarily work-life balance, I mean, is quite correct. If you're running a business, you particularly if you own a business, that's your life. That's part of you. And if you don't have it, it's a big gap out of your life. So you're thinking about it in one way or another all the time. And when you're interacting with people, they're looking at you in relation to your business, uh, or they talk to you, talking to you about your business. So you never completely leave it. But I don't have any, I don't have any problems with that. And this idea that, you know, you need time to think strategy and other more running operations, you haven't got time to think. You think strategy all the time and you think about it in the bath in the morning or, or when you go to bed at night. You know, sometimes you need rest. You need because you're tired and exhausted. And sometimes at weekends, I feel. My wife says I'm the most uncommunicative person <laughs> that, uh, that ever existed. She thinks I'm a, Sounds she familiar. Thinks I'm a complete zombie. But... but, but uh, uh, where, where other people find it rather gregarious. At, uh, <laughs> it just so, depends. So, 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 so I, you know, uh, I think uh, these days everything's a little bit uh, exaggerated in that way about the balance of things. Yeah, it's not so. binary. And on that note, let's open this up. Let's see if we've got a question. Yes. Yes, uh, good evening, Mr. Rocco. If uh, being a, an hotelier entrepreneur was not your dream job, what would have been your dream job? 
other than uh, running hotels and developing hotels. So if you hadn't have been a hotelier, what would have been your dream job? Would you have been an actor? Well, I, I nearly was an actor. <laughs> I heard that, but you apparently that. you wouldn't I have been went, a good I, actor. One, uh, one day I met Michael Caine and he said, did you used to be an actor? And I said, no. He said, well, were you ever in a television play? And I said, and I said, yes, a matter of fact. I said, when I was 13 years old. He said, yeah. He said, I was in it too. He said, before I was discovered. <laughs> and I had a talking part and he was, and he was an extra. <laughs> it could have all been so different. And, 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 he said, he said I, I remember you very well. He said, you were such a polite little boy. <laughs> uh, and, and guess what I played? I played an Italian waiter in an Italian restaurant. <laughs> which, was, which, was, uh, which was very appropriate. After that, I was offered all sorts of roles, actually. Now, this was an ITV production for its fifth anniversary in 58. I was 13 then. And I was off the young, uh, Rose Tattoo, the Young Life of Sir John Barbaroli, the, so a number of, of parts. And so my father wasn't at all keen. <laughs> and uh, he said, do you want to become an actor or do you want to work hard, go to boarding school, go to university and come into the business? So I said, well, I want to work hard, go into the business. So that's the closest I got to ever doing another job. There you go. Listen, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you for having us in your home. Please, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Sirocco Forte. We're going to close off this exceptional Jazz Shapers Live session with a last song from P.P. Arnold and her band. Thank you so much to all of you in the audience. Uh, here she is, ladies and gentlemen, with her band. It's P.P. Arnold one last time. So I was uh, fortunate to be in the right place at the right time when another great British artist, songwriter, Mr. Cat Stevens, wrote a very beautiful song and gave it to me. The song is called The First Cut is the Deepest. And I recorded it about 10 years before Rod Stewart. <laughs> and I don't think Sheryl Crow was even born. <laughs> So I'm going to sing it to you now with my wonderful band here. I would have given you all of my heart But there's someone who's torn it apart and he's taken almost all that I've got And if you want, to try to love again Baby, I'll try to love again But I know The first cut is the deepest Baby, I know First cut is the deepest Plus when it comes to being lucky He's cursed When it comes to loving me He's worse But when it comes to being loved He's first And that's how I know The first cut is the deepest Baby, I know First cut is the deepest I still want you by my side Just to help me dry the tears that I've cried And I'm sure gonna give you a try And if you want I'll try to love again Baby, I'll try to love again, but I know The first cut is the deepest Baby, I know first cut is the deepest Cause when it comes to being lucky, he's first When it comes to loving me 
But when it comes to being loved, he's first. And that's how I know the first cut is the deepest. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers. <laughs>